15 has noticed that, wait a second, there's something that is not quite right with your development audience. And he says in verse 11, Of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. What he's saying here is your development has been hampered. You are frozen. You even have regressed in your development. And it is not because uh, you don't have the capabilities to do so. It's because there is a spiritual obstacle in your life. And the difficulty is not that they are simple, sim- simply uh, mentally lazy here. He says, we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. But they have a spiritual resistance. The author, the writer of Hebrews, wanted to go in into more depth of what it meant for Jesus to be a high priest, not after the order of Aaron and the Levites, but on a superior platform, the order of Melchizedek. But he says in order to go there, there's some prerequisites you need to have got through already. Some basic first principles. And verse 12. But it's not because there's an inability because um, you just don't have the mental capacity to get it. He says the obstacle to understanding deeper things in the scripture here that I want to get to, and he does get to them, by the way, in chapter 7, if you're wondering, is he going to talk about it? Is he going to do it? Yeah, chapter 7 he is. But the obstacle was a heart problem. There was a spiritual resistance. They They were unwilling to work out the deeper implications of the gospel in their lives. And the continued existence as Christians was dependent on the readiness to hear what he has to say. There are three things in this passage. Uh, uh, verses 12 and 13 kind of describe the, the, give us the problem and describe the problem. And then verse 14 gives a solution if they're ready to follow it here. But the first thing I want us to see this morning is that Discipleship is supposed to travel on a path. But sometimes we get flat tires in our discipleship process and discipleship path because we go through potholes. And the pothole here of their discipleship was their resistance to the Word of God. You cannot grow as a disciple if you will resist the Word of God. And what do I mean resist the Word of God? Not just coming and hearing it on a Sunday morning or a Sunday school, or even just reading it every day in your personal devotions. I'm talking about putting it to practice. You can see that in verse 13 and 14. It's the idea of putting it to practice. And so, as they were traveling along in their discipleship, they hit a pothole that they had dug out themselves. And that pothole was their resistance to the word of God. Jeremiah 6.10, the Israelites had closed the ears to God's message. And Jeremiah describes them by saying this, The word of the Lord is offensive to them, they find no pleasure in it. The writer of Hebrews was concerned that his readers should be showing signs of Christian maturity. But they were still caught up in issues only baby Christians uh, found to, to, to think is the, is the full description of Christianity. Look at how he describes them in verse 12. 
For when for the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God. You need to be taught the basics again. And are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. Those who live on milk are called infants. Imagine you living your whole life on milk in the physical world. If one did that, they wouldn't last, would they? No one is ever supposed to, contrary to Peter Pan, nobody is ever supposed to remain a child forever. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. There's some parallel thoughts here. And and, um, Paul teaches this in 1 Corinthians about the need to press on to maturity and not just stay on the milk. Uh, but to but to be able to digest more and more and understand and grow and more and more and apply more and more of God's word in First Corinthians chapter three. He says in verse one, and I, brethren, could not speak unto you as spiritual, but as unto carnal, which is the idea of living as an unbeliever, fleshly, carnal. Even as unto babes in Christ. Not because they had been newly saved. That wasn't the the issue. It's one thing to be a babe in Christ and to grow in milk. That's one thing. In fact, Peter says, As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. You've got to start somewhere, right? That wasn't the problem. These people had come to Christ for a while. And Paul says in chapter 3, verse 2, I have fed you with milk and not with meat. For hitherto you were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able. For ye are yet carnal, for whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? For while one saith, I am of Paul, another, I am of Paulus, are ye not carnal? And by the way, I think, I think Apollos takes this material and he uses it here as he writes the book of Hebrews, but that's my own opinion. Here, uh, but but their problem was they were divisive. <clears throat> Put a few two-year-olds together in a room. How long do they play nice? Not very long. Why? They're very selfish. They don't solve problems, do they? Well, they think they're solving problems, but not in the way they need to solve problems, right? They are not naturally going to make peace. And you have people who can't get along with one another in church. There's probably a good indicator that they're still babies. They're still in the nursery. And this morning I want to talk to you about how to get out of the nursery. How to get out of the nursery. Because in every church there's probably a few that are still living on milk who shouldn't be living on milk. There are always people who should be, li- who should be starting with milk, but nobody should be living on milk for the rest of their Christian lives. And those who live on milk are called spiritual babes. And so back in Hebrews chapter 5, the word here in verse 11 that is translated dull of hearing is a word that is translated in chapter 6 and verse 12 as slothful. Slothful is the same word, chapter 6 verse 12. The problem is not that the writer is a dull teacher, but they are dull hearers. It refers to a condition of spiritual apathy and laziness that prevents spiritual development. 
I heard of a new mom recently who only ever put their, their infant on his back. And so he's never on his tummy, so he didn't develop the muscles in pulling up. And so his muscle development is way, uh, way behind other, other, other infants his, his age. And that's a, that, that, he, he didn't get the chance to exercise, to, to put into practice, to, to, uh, um, to, to, to develop the, mus- the muscles that he needed and the tone that he needed. Paul here, or the writer of Hebrews here says that their problem was a spiritual apathy and laziness because they don't want to listen and hear and apply. You know, one of the very first signs, and this, is, this has come up over and over in this book so far, is there our response to the Word of God. It comes up over and over. And the first symptom of spiritual regression is a dullness toward the Bible. Sunday school class is dull. Like Bible reading is dull. The preaching is dull. Anything spiritual is dull. Though there are sometimes problems with the, with the messengers, and they can be boring. I can attest to that being one, right? But the problem is usually with the hearer, with the dullness. And in verse 12, he says, For when for the time you have to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. Uh, he's saying, you need to go back to the first principles. That's another way to say, you need to have your ABCs reviewed. You need to get back in kindergarten. You shouldn't be in fourth grade. You need to go back to kindergarten. I was a school teacher for eight years, and uh, it, was a, it was a hard conversation. You would have to occasionally have with a parent say, he's not ready to go on to the next grade. He needs to master these things. If he, if, he, if, he, if he goes on to the next grade and hasn't mastered these things, he's only going to get worse and worse. He's going to be more frustrated. He's going to withdraw uh, from school even more. He needs to get this down. Oh, but he's going to be without his friends. They're going to go on ahead. With... Yeah, but he's going uh, to make new friends. But if he goes on with his, with his friends and he's not ready for school, he's going to pe- become the object of their teasing. And here the writer is saying, you need to go back. You need to go back a grade. You need to have your ABCs reviewed. And folks, oh, there's a warning here. With the pothole to our discipleship is being our resistance to the Word of God. If we find ourselves wanting to turn away from the challenge to think harder about our faith and to, and to press further into our faith, we need to ask ourselves this question. Are you prepared to settle for permanent babyhood? And if you are, that's a scary thought. That's a very frightening thought. But look what he tells them in verse 12. For when for the time you ought to be teachers... You have need that one teach you again, which be the first principle of the oracles. Here he gives a little bit of understanding of the pathway of discipleship. That one of the goals, one of the points of discipleship is that you multiply, you reproduce. You multiply, you reproduce. The second point is the point of discipleship is your reproduction. The point of discipleship is your reproduction. 
Uh, when you took shop class in high school, um, you watched the teacher demonstrate something. And then little by little, you began to be able to reproduce those skills. The whole purpose of you going to school from kindergarten to high school is so that you'd be able to have a, a level of information that would be able to help you operate in the world. For those of you in the trades, you know that you go from apprentice to journeyman to master. What if you only stay as apprentice for 20 years? You see, maturity is marked by progress from the student to the teacher. These folks ought to, by now, have been well past the basics. They, uh, in chapter 2, verse um, 3 says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? They had had God's apostles give them the word of God. They had been taught in the doctrine of the apostles. They ought by now to be past the basics and in the position of leading others by word and example to maturity. Now some of you, when you see this, you might think of the the official office of of a Bible teacher. But that's not necessarily what he's talking about here. Because this exhortation is addressed to to all of the audience here who are reading the book of Hebrews. Which would have been people of a variety of very different gifts, wouldn't it have been? According to 1 Corinthians 12, all kinds of gifts in the church. And very um, different... um, personalities and and, and capacities. But he says to all of them, you ought to be teaching. And the idea here is teaching informally. And this is the the concept. Anyone who is a mature believer should be able to lead others by word and example to maturity. See, the ability to uh, share spiritual truth. It's not like you have, he's saying every one of you needs to be Sunday school teachers. Or have a formal office of, uh, of teaching the Bible. What he's saying is you ought to be able to share spiritual truth with other people. You ought to be able to lead them uh, into the word of God. And, and, and be the catalyst in leading them uh, into a closer relationship with Christ. That's a mark of maturity is what, is what he's saying. Now not all Christians have what the Bible calls the gift of teaching, do they? But all can share what you have learned from the Word of God with others. One of the hardest lessons kids have to learn is sharing, isn't it? One of the hardest lessons adults have to learn is sharing, isn't it? We can all learn, we can all share what we've learned. The recipients of this letter have been saved long enough to be able to share God's truth with others. But instead of helping others to grow and pouring into the lives of others, these Hebrew Christians were in need of learning again the basics, the simple teachings of the Christian life. They were experiencing a second childhood. So the point of discipleship is multiplication or reproduction, investing in the lives of others. And I'm going to ask you this morning, and I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, how many of you have somebody who you are pouring your life into? And moms, it's probably going to be your kids if they're still at home at this stage of your life. But how many of you have someone you're pouring spiritual truth into? If not, let's think about these words here. 
For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. Listen, some of you in this room have been saved longer than these people right here have been saved who he's talking to. Do you realize that the amount of biblical knowledge accumulated in this room is greater than pastors in Africa? That there are lay people in this room who know more about the Bible than people who are willing to pastor in Africa? It's a proven fact. Everybody over uh, in these other countries are saying, we need more training, we need more training. We got the heart, we got the willingness, we need more Bible. And the word of God that is ministered and delivered to us is not just to make us, it's not like a water balloon, you know? Guys, when you, when you hook the water balloon up to the hose, and you put water in it, and you watch, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. That's not the point of it. The purpose of you intaking the word of God is so that you're like a pipeline. You're not getting fatter. You're a conduit. You're a channel of the Word of God. You, turn, you, 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 you teach others. You, you share others what you learn. You check in how you're doing. You show how the Word of God can help. You're pointing people to Christ. You know how Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 4? He says, The goal of the pastor is to equip saints to do the work of the ministry. And the work of the ministry, he says, is to have the saints speak the truth with love. Speak the truth with love. And he says when that happens, the whole body, Ephesians 4, 12 to 16, you can check it out, the whole body then works together and builds itself up. Every part doing its share. So is there someone who you are pouring into, or do you need to go back to milk? If we need to go back to milk, let's do milk. But let's go to baby food next. And then let's go to little tiny pieces of steak. And then let's get to the prime rib. The ability to share spiritual truth with others is a mark of maturity, not, not a skill. I mean, there's skills. You grow in that. Understand what I mean? But it's not, it's not, this isn't talking about the gift of teaching. This is talking about being a Christian. Being a Christian. You know what's awesome in the book of Acts? Um, <clears throat> the church of Jerusalem... Um, uh, which had been told to go into all the nations and make disciples of all the nations, <clears throat> be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and the othermost parts of the earth. The church of Jerusalem uh, grew in Acts chapter 2. But then some persecution came and some heat came and pressures came. And, and, a pro- and, and, and it became, became so hot, persecution-wise, that they had, some of them had to flee the city. And the Bible says in the book of Acts that uh, when they fled the persecution, they also... Spread the gospel that way. And the word that is used, and I think the King James translates it as, as they preached the gospel or proclaimed the gospel as they left, as they were fleeing, is a word where we get the word kasa. And the idea was not like they were walking down the road yelling and preaching to everybody they saw. The idea was they were talking about the gospel with all kinds of people. They were talking about how Christ had changed them. And it, and it happened through a very subversive means the point of discipleship is our reproduction
Finally, though, he says in verse 13. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But here's the solution, verse 14. Here's the solution to it all. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, maturity. And here's how he describes maturity. Look at this is the definition of maturity according to the book of Hebrews. Even those who by reason of use, constant use, have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. You see, if the pothole and the and the and the and the and the um, problem in our discipleship is our resistance to applying the word of God, because that short circuits the point of discipleship, seeing other disciples made, the point of discipleship is your reproduction, then the cure to that is the path of discipleship is your refinement. Your refinement. <clears throat> For those of you who worked out into the gym, and if you were in your college age years, guys, you probably at some time may have worked out in the gym because you wanted to work on your body, right? And you would refine your muscles. Perhaps there's another skill um, that you have worked on and refined and it took practice and you have trained and trained in it. On your job, your first day on the job, you had your on-the-job training, and who knows how long it took, a couple weeks, uh, a few months, three months, or whatever. You had on-the-job training, right? And you, first of all, followed someone around, learning how to do that job. But what if you were still doing that two years later? You're following them around, just watching them what they do. But you never did the job. You wouldn't have a job, would you? It doesn't work in the real world, and it doesn't work in the spiritual world as well. Our physical bodies have senses through which we function. It's bad when one of those senses don't function, right? But our inner spiritual man has spiritual senses. And as we feed on the Word of God, and we apply in daily life, our inner spiritual senses get their exercise. They become strong and keen. They turn flabby muscles into, into uh, uh, rock-hard uh, uh, machines that can do spiritual work. And Paul calls this process exercising ourselves unto godliness. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 4. We have a, a, a culture and a nation that... Uh, uh, a certain segment that is that is obsessed with physical fitness. And there's nothing wrong with physical fitness. But we have a we have many churches that don't put that same interest and effort into their spiritual lives. And Paul says in First Timothy Chapter 4, verse 8. Or chapter 4, verse 7. But refuse profane and old wise fables. And he says, And exercise thyself rather on the godliness. It's the word that Paul used from the Roman world of his day. It's a word that we get the word gymnasium out of. He says, Go to God's spiritual gym. 
Exercise yourself in the godliness. How does that happen? For bodily exercise profiteth little. It profits. But godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is, and of that which is, which is to come. This is a faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptation. Then he says, For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. These things command and teach. We can't coast. We can't rest on our laurels. We can't depend on how we did last week. There always has to be a pushing ahead. There always has to be a striving in God's power to take the next spiritual step. And if we're not moving ahead, if we're not leaning forward, we are going backwards. I want to tell you... um, about a man who I felt and admired and looked up to and said was going forward and who I believe the Lord will say well done a good and faithful servant to. Uh, Last Sunday before the Awana program um, my friend Dick Lowell came in and said he needed to talk to me. And Dick Lowell and some of you I don't know if there's anybody in here who went with us that trip. Uh, in 2013, took a trip to Jamaica. And there we uh, labored with a, two missionary couples, Harold and Terry Nichols, who moved from around the Buffalo area in New York, uh, left very well-paying jobs to go serve in Jamaica. Not in the nice parts. The nice parts of Jamaica are the outer ring where all the beaches are. You get out from the beaches and you're in the hills, and it's, it's pretty third world. They ministered there. Uh, helping people uh, build houses. You, you would be shocked to see some of the things that people lived in. Um, <clears throat> uh, providing medicine, providing food, but providing the gospel through those different avenues. And they were there for 14 years. As of this year, they've been there 14 years. And the Terry, <clears throat> Harold's wife, noticed children that would walk by the mission house and Terry, knowing the family situation in Jamaica, said, somebody's got to reach those kids. She started a little Bible club with just a few people. And it grew and it grew to like 125 kids every week. Um, and they would teach the kids the Bible. They'd do activities with them. They would basically act as their parents to those kids. Kids really didn't have um, parents that, that um, spent the amount of interest and time that those kids needed to nurture. Um... And those kids grew up, and they began to help. And they had seen about two or three cycles of that here. Everybody knew Harold, and they called him Mas Harold. Everybody knew Harold. He's one of these guys that everybody in town would know. And nobody would have a single bad thought that would go to their mind about him. And he had a partner, Randy, uh, and his wife, and his wife... Uh, recently, he was back in Iowa, but Randy uh, left a good job as um, an accountant, and he began to um, grow in the Word of God, and he felt God calling him to be a missionary, and he joined the, the mission, and he worked with, um, with, with Harold in, in a lot of the Bible training. And they were good buddies, um, Randy and Harold, <clears throat> and they loved to ride their motorcycles. It was kind of a, an outlet for them. 
And they would ride their motorcycles to, to different parts of the island and where they needed to work and, and minister to people and check in and visit. And uh, last Saturday, um, Terry put a picture up on, on Facebook of her and Harold standing back to back with their backpacks. And it was, it was just a cute picture. And then a few hours later, um, and this is, this is what, what Dick came to talk to me about before the um, Awana program, Randy and Harold had gone on their motorcycles to go check out a, a, a place where they're going to build a house for some very poor people and check out the foundation. And they didn't come home. And there was a police call to Terry and Randy's um, contacts there in Jamaica, because his wife was in Iowa, that said um, Randy's body had been found with his hands tied behind his back by one of the strips off of his shirt, and um, he had been shot. But they hadn't found Harold. And Randy's motorcycle was nearby. So Randy went home to be with the Lord. They searched all night. They had people from all over the village where Harold ministered, searching for Harold, for where Harold would be. There was a 90-year-old woman who Harold had checked in on every week who asked somebody to cut her a stick so she could walk down the mountains of Jamaica and look for, look for his, his body. And they found Harold um, sun, uh, Monday, Monday morning. And when, Ran, um, when Dick came to talk to me, um, all we knew was Randy was, had been killed. And Harold probably had, but we didn't know anything about Harold yet. They hadn't found him. They found uh, Harold about 1,500 um, feet away or so in his motorcycle. And, and um, he had been wrapped in barbed wire and had been uh, executed as well and beaten in. And you looked at two men who had given their life to the cause of Christ, literally. By the way, Jamaica is just perplexed. They don't know why in the world. Who did this? It seemed to be a random thing, but who knows? Nobody knows. But I thought about those people, Harold and Randy, and I still can't get my mind around it. Um, And I thought, here we have people left very well-paying jobs to go minister in a place that Jamaican people are wonderful people, very nice. But that's where their lives ended. Doing God's will. Doing God's work. But they are willing to do that. And I know that the Lord's going to say to both of them, well done, thou good and faithful servant. But then I thought about this passage here. Hebrews 5, 11, 14. Those are people who are be mature because they took steps along the way. They got saved later in life, and they, but they took steps along the way to grow. They had accelerated growth. And not everybody's going to be a missionary to Jamaica. But then I thought, how apathetic we are so many times. How unmotivated we are. Here are two men who gave their lives... And it, wasn't, it would be hard enough if we heard they had a motorcycle accident and their lives were taken. But to have their lives taken in such a brutal way is, is, is just, just really, really wrestling with. They were willing to do that. 
how cold can we be to the Word of God? How scared can we be uh, um, and frightened and motivi- motivated by fright to, to say a word to someone? To dig into uh, the Word of God. To pour into somebody else. And folks, I want all of us to be able to hear well done, thou good and faithful servant. And I think that happens based on this text when you recognize that the pothole to your growth, your discipleship, and your Christian life is resistance to the Word of God and obeying and applying it. And the greatest command after love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself is one that ties those two together. And you know what it is? Go make disciples. Because if we go and make disciples, we are loving God and loving what He loves. We're walking with Him. Because we got to be the person who needs to be able to train others. And how can we be that person unless we're walking with the Lord? And the most loving thing we can do is to other people on the horizontal level is to make disciples. Evangelization, and you could say edification. Presenting the gospel and building people up. That's what our church is supposed to be all about. It's like, if I have a lawnmower, and I go out on Saturday morning, and I don't turn that lawnmower on, and I walk all over the yard and make a nice little pass with the wheels in the yard. You'd say, what in the world are you doing? That's not what a lawnmower is for. And folks, sometimes a church can be like us, just walking over the lawn, we're doing, we're going through the routines, but we're not accomplishing what we're supposed to do and make disciples. And the writer here says the reason is because there's an obstacle in our hearts. And so when I try to reconcile that story of, of, of Randy and Harold and their legacy, imperfect, very imperfect men, but men who are willing to give their lives for the gospel. And men who are right now are joined in that great cloud of witnesses around the throne of God. Who have heard God say to them, Welcome home, my child, thou good and faithful servant. And then I look where I am in my spiritual life and say, I didn't even want to visit so-and-so and talk to him about the Bible. A man has been coming who needs, he needs, he needs encouragement. He needs strength and word of God. And I didn't feel like doing that Tuesday morning. I did it. But I didn't feel like doing that. Because there's something here that's very shriveled. And so folks, I ask that you would pray for me and pray for you. That we get a heart to make disciples. Next Sunday morning and Sundays, we're going to talk about strategies for those who are in the exchange class to reach those who are on their list, who they're burdened about. And the following Sunday, we're going to talk about some of the uh, ideas that you all have contributed to being Matthew 5.16 people, letting our light shine. To break out of our comfort zones, to break out of the routine, so to speak, to move into being a people who are on the movement for God. And joining in God's mission of what He's already doing. God's already at work. We've got to join in what He's already doing here. So the question is, 
do you want to hear the Lord say, well done, good and faithful servant? The way that happens is our lives united with Christ, walking with Christ, and doing what Jesus loved, pouring the word of God, speaking the truth in love, word and deed, and to other people. I just wanted to share, as we close here, uh, just a little, a little video of um, the Prime Minister of Jamaica uh, visited uh, Terry, um, and you can hear a little bit of her heart and testimony. She's been amazing uh, through this. Uh, but you can hear a little bit of, of what God's doing, and, and but yet the gap, the the, 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 the things that she's wondering, what's God going to do now? And he, the Prime Minister of Jamaica, came down and visited them, expressed his condolences uh, here. And um, I just want you to... Thank you. 
they're having a good time. Yeah, the thing is, they would have had a, supposed to have a three hour layover in New Jersey, and it was over five hours. Oh. So they didn't get to Greenville until midnight. Oh, wow, yeah. And it must have been there around 10. <laughs> well, at least it was at night, and they didn't miss anything. Um, you can think of it that way, I guess.
at 336. My hope is in the Lord. Um, Mrs. Wiley picked this. It's one of her favorites. And verse 3 in particular, which says, And now for me he stands before the Father's throne. He shows his wounded hands and names me as his own. Let's sing verse 1, 2, and 3. 336 is my hope. It's in the Lord. Stand together and sing.
thank you so much again for all you've been in our lives and for the great salvation you've given us. And Lord, I doubt you can serve you. And maybe you can get back a portion of the video. And thank you for being in our Jesus' name.
So he was against and then followed. And finally he comes to Jeremiah and uh, secretly in chapter 38. It says, So Zedekiah the king swore secretly unto Jeremiah, saying, Oh well, before that, that Jeremiah said unto Zedekiah, If I declare unto thee what thou have now, shall he put me to death? And if I give thee counsel, wilt thou not act unto me? So Zedekiah the king swore secretly unto Jeremiah, saying, As the law liveth that made up this soul, I will not put thee to death, neither will I give thee into the hand of these men that seek thy life. I thought that was interesting, he said, that made this soul. Evidently it appears that Zedekiah believed that there was a God. But he didn't have a heart And he just was a very weak God. That's, uh, but he did, I think he believed that a kind of Jeremiah and wanted to know the truth. He never did turn, really turn to God. Anybody else with a favorite here this evening? This. 
me and um, a lot of where I am today is in uh, tribute to her and the work and the effort that she put into my life. Um, thank Lord also for the opportunity to go to the Why Jesus conference yesterday. Um, it was a great blessing. Um, through both through the speaking speakers and also through the people they'll to make contact with and reconnect with that I've met um, in the past and met some new people. And thinking through what do I share about it when you take uh, eight hours of speaking and share in a few minute testimony what to share. And I think one of the things that stood out to me was the fact that we're all called to be apologists, so to be sharing our faith. And it's not just um, apologetics is not just giving logical defenses and having to be someone like Robert Zacharias to be able to give all of the answers in a very logical way, but it's also sharing the truth, it's how we live our life, it's, it's, um, it's being really living the Christian life, is part of what that is. Another part was, I took away was the need to come to understand where a person really at and to be able to tailor our truth that we're presenting to them in a way that they will receive it because we understand where they are and asking questions and um, following Jesus' example to asking them questions to really get um, helping them think about where they're at and the need to help a person see their sin before they're really be able to understand what grace is at and it was such a uh, blessing to be with around 6,000 other people Believers who are, have a desire to learn as well and will be being fed in other ways. Open your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 25. Genesis chapter 25. We want to look into the life of Jacob this evening. The life of Jacob is a life that's marked with struggle, beginning with his birth. Genesis chapter 25, verse 22 says, And the children struggled together within her. And this is where we left off last time we were working for the book of Genesis. This is Rebecca. She has uh, twins inside of her, and they're fighting already inside of the womb. And um, <clears throat> there's probably no, pregnant, uh, no easy pregnancy, I would imagine, here being a man, I can say that. Um, but this was one that was particularly interesting and tumultuous. Um, the children struggled together within her. So much so that Rebecca says, what in the world is going on inside of me? It was so unusual. And verse 23 says, she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said in verse 23, the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels, and the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. The warfare that you had going on in your womb, Rebecca, is that you have two nations inside of you. They would... Um, uh, be the fathers of, 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 of two different nations that would not be friends. But the younger one uh, will be the one through whom the promised one will come. And they, I mentioned last night, they don't write parenting books for that kind of a thing. Um, can you imagine knowing that your two children are going to be fighting from inside the womb and they're going to be two separate nations that are going to <laughs> go in different directions and 
So it's through the young, then the older one's going to be serving the younger. In other words, the younger one's going to be the one who's exalted in God's plan. That's pretty far-reaching. And verse 25 says, The first came out all red, all over like a hairy garment, and they called his name Esau. And after that came, his, his brother came out, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel, and his name was called Jacob. What is true about Jacob is he comes out holding his brother's foot firmly in his grasp, and he is called Jacob, which means heel grabber, or you could say cheater. Cheater. And they were opposite to the extreme as they grew up in verses 27 through 34. <laughs> one is an outdoorsman. The other one is, uh, is more of a, uh, likes to stay around the home and do things around the home. <coughs> and Isaac favors Esau and Rebecca favors Jacob. And, and, uh, and there's a problem uh, there in verse 30. Esau said to Jacob, Feed me, I pray thee, with that same red pottage, for I am faint. Jacob said, Here's Jacob the cheater, the schemer. Sell me this day thy birthright. Esau said, Behold, I'm at the point to die, and what profit shall this birthright do to me? And so he gives the birthright. Now, the birthright was your chance of the inheritance of the firstborn son. The firstborn son would receive the father's inheritance, and then the rest would be divided uh, to, to Jacob, the other third. And the Bible says in verse 34 that that happened, and it says Esau despised his birthright. Esau despised his birthright. And so when that birthright was negotiated and manipulated by Jacob to receive, that firstborn, who would have been the head of the family when his father passed off, Jacob was legally considered the firstborn. And that culture by trickery. And refusing to trust what God has said to Rebecca that the older would serve the younger, Jacob takes things into his own hands to wrestle away that position of prominence from his brother uh, Esau. Takes things into his own hands. And that's what you're going to see with Jacob over and over and over again, taking things into his own hands. And we really shouldn't be surprised because that's what Abraham did several times, right? Faltered in his faith. And those patterns are passed on uh, here to Jacob. <coughs> and what uh, begins to happen in, uh, in, in Esau and Jacob's life in chapter 27 is that Isaac realizes he's at the end of his life. He's past the twilight later. <coughs> and he calls in chapter 27, verse 1, Esau, his son, and says, My son, and he said, Behold, now I am old, I know not the day of my death. Now therefore, take, I pray, thy weapons, thy quiver, and thy bow, and go out in the field and take me some venison, and make me some savory meat, such as I love, and bring it to me that I may eat, that my soul may bless thee before I die. Rebecca hears about this. Rebecca says to Jacob, Your father is going to bless Esau. Here. Um, let's scheme a maneuver to uh, have your father, who is, whose eyes are failing, uh, bless you. Hear the words of blessing. Self. Yourself. <coughs> you have to wonder about Jacob. Um, if he was 
if his brother was favored by, by, by Isaac, there would really be a, a void, I think, in Jacob's heart uh, for that affirmation from his father that his father just seemed to show just for Esau. A void. And perhaps just once he wanted to be accepted by his father. Hear him speak to him about his future, the way that Isaac seemed to just so naturally want to talk about that with Esau. And so he goes along with his mother's scheme and they butcher some goats instead of the venison that Esau was going to get and cook up stew. And he, uh, he puts some of the goat skins on his arms to be hairy like his brother. And um, he's trying to have his heart filled. Trying to have his heart filled and taking it into his own hands. He plays the part of Esau, the smelly stew fixer. And Isaac responds. It excites all of Isaac's senses. And he says, um, <clears throat> in verse 25, he says, bring it near to me and I will eat it my son's venison that my soul may bless thee. And he brought it near to him and he did eat and he brought him wine and he drank. And his father Isaac said to him, come near now and kiss me, my son. And he came near and kissed him and he smelled the smell of his garment and blessed him and said, see the smell of my son is as the smell of the field which the Lord hath blessed. And here's his blessing. Therefore, God, give thee of the dew of heaven, in the fatness of the earth, and plenty of corn and wine. Let people serve thee, and nations bow down to thee. Be Lord over thy brethren, and let thy mother's sons bow down to thee. Cursed be everyone that curses thee, and blessed be he that blesseth thee. What a family. What a family. And Isaac blesses Jacob with a covenant of fertile land, Bountiful provision, an empire through his descendants, protection. And Jacob must have rubbed his hand and said, I did it. I did it. I schemed it. I got it. And that ends very quickly here. When it says in verse 30, it came to pass as soon as Isaac had made an end of blessing Jacob, and Jacob was yet scarce gone out from the presence of Isaac his father, that Esau his brother came in from his something, and he brings back the stew he's supposed to bring. And he presents it before his father, who says, Who are you? I'm Esau. Verse 33, it says, And Isaac trembled very exceedingly, and said, Ooh, where is he that has taken venison and brought it me, and I have eaten of all that came us and have blessed him? Yea, he shall be blessed. Esau, or excuse me, Isaac trembled. He trembles uh, very violently, very exceedingly, as it's translated here. <coughs> I have a question for you. Why do you think Isaac trembled violently? <coughs> Why did Isaac tremble violently? Because he was deceived and didn't go to his favorite son. <coughs> well, why did he. So, just a dis- disappointment? See, disappointment? So, what you're saying is that Shazam is disappointed because Esau didn't get it? Is that what you're saying? I'm understanding. Okay. I might play into it. 
I think he realized that he didn't do God's will to bless the eldest son. What God had ordained through the years. Remember chapter 25, verse 23, when Rebecca asked the Lord what's going on inside him, and he says, the elder shall serve the younger. Do you think Jacob didn't know that? I'm sure that revelation was passed on. Or excuse me, Isaac didn't know that. Uh, the revelation was passed on to Isaac. And I, I think here that um, <clears throat> here's the issue. He's not quaking with anger, like I've been tricked here. Um, I, I don't necessarily think he was quaking with, with disappointment here. Um, I think he's trembling before God. He is trembling before God because he has recognized <coughs> that he has gone, <coughs> his plan to bless Esau is directly against God's plan. He's trembling before God. His, his attempt to thwart the plan of God and kind of pick up his father's old habits here, Abraham's habits, of, of doing his own, trying, trying to do things his own way, um, Sodom. It didn't work. He was overruled. And Isaac says, what, is, what does he say to, to Esau? He says, Yea, and he shall be blessed. He shall be blessed. You understand, uh, Esau gets a little bit of a blessing. Um, <clears throat> verse 38, 39, 40, he gets a little bit of a blessing. But the result was in verse 41, Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing where his father blessed him. <clears throat> but you can understand why Esau would be, say, resentful of Jacob because of the way, the manner in which this happened. But yet Esau was also pushing and rebelling against God and his plan uh, through his brother. And doesn't that really make you scratch your head and wonder, this is the family that the promised one is going to come through? You see, people in the Bible aren't necessarily heroes, are they? No. But the one who's going to come from them is a hero. The promised one, Jesus. Really quite a mess, aren't they? We would have them in family services, wouldn't we? Uh, it would be reported to DHS, right? Um, every, everyone in the family here is seeking the blessing of God, the blessing of God, but they are not bending the knee to God. They're not bending the knee to God. But God is gracious, and He is sovereign, and He will work in the midst of failure, because He has made a covenant promise. And in spite of the um, Isaac's opposition to God's plan, to have the blessing come through Jacob, and Rebecca's manipulation to try to have that done, and Jacob's deceitful imitation, and Esau's uh, opposition, and even indifference at some times, uh, God's word will be accomplished. You know what the Bible says about Esau? <clears throat> Verse 41. Esau said in his heart, the days of mourning for my father are at hand. Then will I slay my brother Jacob. 
You know what got Esau up in the morning every day from that from when that happened was yeah, it's almost gone. Then I can take him. Then I can take him out. What kind of a guy is, is that, right? Um, <laughs> you know, we can comfort ourselves by playing in our minds somebody else's demise, bringing down another person to size with with words or or thoughts, uh, rejoicing when we see. Uh, them fall instead of seeking forgiveness and healing. And so Jacob had to run away. He had to run away. And I'd like you to go over to chapter 28, please. Chapter 28. He runs away. And he's actually sent out by his father. He says, find uh, a, a wife um, uh, there in Canaan. At verse 10 of chapter 28, it says, Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran, and he lighted upon a certain place and tarried there all night because the sun was set. He found a place of camp for the night. And he took of the stones of that place and put them for his pillows and lay down in that place to sleep. And he fell asleep in his dreams. And he dreams of a ladder. A ladder that reaches from heaven to earth. Do you remember the Tower of Babel? They were trying to build a tower that went from earth to heaven, weren't they? It's God bless the initiate. He's got to come down. And this ladder was built by God in Jacob's dream. It was a ladder on which men would make their way up to the gates of God. It was a, a ladder which God would come down to a man on that night who's all by himself, lonely, fearful, free. Pretty much a rascal, but loved by God. Loved by God. And in that dream, that ladder that God sends down to the earth, I would think that Jake would have every reason to think in that dream that God was coming to curse him. But God didn't come down to curse Jacob. But look what he says to Jacob. Verse 13, Behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham thy father, the God of Isaac, the land whereon thou liest, to thee will I give it unto thy seed. And thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and thou shalt spread abroad to the west, and to the east, and to the north, and to the south. And in thee, and in thy seed, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And behold, I am with thee, and will keep thee in all places where thou goest, and will bring thee again into this land, for I will not leave thee until I have done that which I have spoken to thee. Jacob was a fugitive. But in that promise there, verses 13 through 14, what does God promise? Oh, Jacob's a fugitive. <coughs> he says, you're not going to be a fugitive forever. You're going to what? I'm going to bring you home. I'm going to bring you back here. Back home. Jacob had no wife or children. He's all alone in the wilderness. But what does God promise him? Offspring. He's not going to be childless forever. Jacob would here, would imagine, would have just left with belongings to carry on his back here, essentially impoverished, leaving home with nothing. But what does God promise to give? A rich land. 
Jacob had no reason to think that he was someone God could use in the lives of others. He was very good at looking out just for himself. But God promised that through him, even though he was here in this stage of his life, very selfish, ironically, because of God's faithfulness, God would use him to bless all the families of the earth forever through Jesus. His life, right now, very very um, shrunk-wrapped and tight and selfish, God was going to form and use to bless the whole world. God makes clear to Jacob that the blessing he longs for is indeed his. He's going to be the recipient of the promises made to his grandfather Abraham. And God says, I'm going to be with you, I'm going to bring you back, and I'm not going to leave you until I've done what I promised to you. In verse 15. Jacob's very alone. But God promises he's no longer going to be alone. God's going to be with him wherever he goes. Jacob wakes up in verse 16 and he says, Surely the Lord is in this place and I knew it not. And he was afraid and said, How dreadful is this place? That's not the idea of an awful place. The idea of an awesome place. This is none other than the house of God and this is the gate of heaven. He had heard Dad talk about Yahweh. <clears throat> he had heard what his grandparents had said about Yahweh. But this is the first time that Jacob has an encounter with God. He's met God personally. And God's going to begin a work here in Jacob's life. Not that he hadn't begun it earlier, but he's really going to press down here. begin a work in Jacob's life. Jacob's going to be a work in progress. <clears throat> Do you know what it's like to be a work in progress? Uh, aren't you grateful that God didn't wait for you to figure it all out? But he broke into your life. He sought you out. And Philippians 1 6 that he who's begun a good work in you is going to complete it the day of Jesus Christ. Isn't that how God works? That's what he did to Jacob. That's how he works today. So Jacob lives far away from home. He has a dream in his head. And he goes to Haran in chapter 29. He uh, uh, finds his uncle Laban, his mom, Rebecca's um, brother. And this time God's going to have Jacob, the trickster, the cheater, be cheated. He's going to work for seven years to marry Rachel. Only to discover the morning after the wedding that he's married Leah. He's going to have to work another seven years for Rachel. He's going to be cheated out of his wages by his father-in-law Laban. So he reaps what he sows. And he spends 20 years in this land of Paran. But out of that, God's still in the process of fulfilling his promises to Jacob. Remember? God's promises to Abraham that were passed to Isaac across Jacob. A people. He's going to make a people out of him. A nation. And so he leaves that land eventually with 11 children from which a full nation is going to spring. He has possessions if you read the rest of chapter 29 and chapter 30 and chapter 31. He has possessions even very wealthy in flocks and herds. Isaac blessed him uh, about there in, in um, the preview of when he stole the blessing. 
but he did not have what? He had people, he had possessions, but he did not have a place. He did not have a place. In chapter 31, verse 3, God says, okay, Jacob, time to move on. Here's the third thing. The Lord says unto Jacob, Return unto the land of thy fathers and to thy kindred, and I will be with thee. Return in the land of our fathers. Now, why did he leave it in the first place? Run from Esau. As far as he knows, Esau would still be living. And if he returned to the land of his fathers, that's where Esau would be. And you can see the conflict there, can't you? I'm sure he would have just preferred to let it go. And perhaps even in his mind, if he decided to go back, um, it would have been a lot easier to not let anybody know and to keep his distance from Esau. But there's a relationship that God wanted him to mend. And Jacob begins making preparations to meet his brother Esau. In chapter 32, verse 3, it says, And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau his brother unto the land of Seir, the country of Edom. And he commanded them, saying, Thus shall you speak unto my lord Esau, thy servant Jacob have thus, I have sojourned with Laban, I stayed there until now. Uh, oxen and asses, flocks, and men servants, and women servants, that I may then I have sent to tell my Lord that I make my grace in thy sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to thy brother Esau, and also he came to meet thee, and four hundred men with him. <clears throat> you think Jacob's worst fears or suspicions um, crystallize there? And he's greatly afraid, and he starts coming to scheme how, what can I do? Esau's come with 400 men that can only mean one thing he thinks. He's coming to get it. What can I do? So he, he comes up with this scheme of, of the, um, in case they're attacked, uh, uh, have uh, uh, his, his closest relatives protected, etc. Chapter 32, verse 9. <coughs> and Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord which says unto me, Return to thy country and to thy kindred, and I will deal well with thee. Why is he saying that to the Lord? Why does he open his prayer like that? He doesn't seem to be working out the way he says, Remember you said this, Lord, you're going to take care of me, and you told me to go back, and you said you're going to protect me. I just want to remind you of that, Lord. Right? Verse 10. I'm not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which thou hast shown unto my servant. For with thy, my staff I passed over the shore, and now I come to the hands. You bless me. Deliver me, I pray thee, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he will come and smite me and the mother with the children. And thou saidest, I will surely do thee good, and make thy seed as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. God, help. Help. God, you've given me so much grace. Give me more. 
And after praying, he gathered his wives and children, the rest of the possessions, sent them across the river in the dark of the night. It's dangerous, it's desperate. It leaves him alone on the far side of the river, away from his brother Esau. And you can imagine, just like that night there when he was running away from Esau when he was alone, and God met him in his dream, here he is alone again. Probably very exhausted from um, managing that project of moving everything. There wasn't any sleep ahead for Jacob, though. And the pitch black darkness, a hand grips him. It says in verse 24, Jacob was left alone, and there wrestled a man with him until the break of the day. Don't you find that verse very contradictory? Jacob was left alone, and there he's wrestling with a man. Verse 25 says, And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his high, and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. This guy who he was wrestling with, this man who he was wrestling with, touched Jacob's hip, put it out of joint with just a touch, and it dawns on Jacob this is not just a man. It obviously seems that apparently that the opponent was able to do that, that that opponent was, was strong enough to have won that struggle at any moment, but he chose not to. And it says in, in uh, verse 26, he said, Let me go, for the day break of dawn was coming. And he said, I will not let thee go, except thou bless me. And he said, the wrestling opponent said, And what is thy name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, Thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel, for as a prince hast thou power with God and with men, and hast prevailed. And Jacob asked him and said, Tell me, I pray thee thy name. And he said, Wherefore is it that thou doest, that thou dost ask after my name? He said, Give him his name. And he blessed him. See this here. And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, which means the face of God. He says, For I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. And as he passed over Peniel, the sun rose upon him, and he halted upon his side. He left it. Therefore the children of Israel eat not of the sinew which shrank, which is upon the hollow of the thigh unto this day, because he cuts the hollow of Jacob's thigh and sinew that shrank. Let me go, he said, the opponent says, because the day is starting to break. The sun's going to come over the hill soon. It's dark. The sun's going to come up soon. And Jacob, in that darkness, realizes when that individual touches his hip that he is wrestling with God incarnate. And Jacob knows that no human can see the face of God and live. And that convinces Jacob that his adversary here that he's wrestling with was not mere man, but God in human form, perhaps a pre-incarnate Christ, we don't know. And Jacob says in verse 26, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So Poland had stayed. And the sun rose, and Jacob could see his face. Perhaps Jacob wouldn't have survived. Jacob's life was in danger, yet Jacob begs him to stay. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? I think Jacob would come to the point of his life where he's beginning to realize.
convinced that God is going to make good on his promises. He wants to know God. He wants to be known by God himself. You notice what's different about this is that Jacob seems to be less concerned about getting things from God now and more concerned about getting God. Wanting God to have all of him. And the way he's going to enter into this blessing is by making things right with Esau. Coming clean with that. But also coming clean before God about who he is. What's your name, God says to him. And he says, Cheater. My name's Cheater. And that's what I am. What's your name? Cheater. He's confessing here. He's confessing. I'm Jacob. I'm the twister, the deceiver, the cheater. I have no right to any of your blessings. God wants his heart. And God gives him a different name. This name is Israel, which literally means God fights, God strives. A new identity that defines him not on who he was and what he had done, but who God would, uh, what, what God would do on his behalf. God's strength and his weakness. And to have Jacob's heart, God was prepared to dislocate his head. And the next verse says that Jacob walks in the length the rest of his life. Um, this was just a bone out of joint here. But this, is a, this is a permanent thing for the rest of Jacob's life here. He would walk with a limp. And you know, every time you take a step there, you feel it in your head. And as a nomad, you take a lot of steps, wouldn't you? What do you think the Lord is trying to communicate to Jacob with that? Don't forget. The blessing of God came with a limp, didn't it? It came with a limp. God wrenched his leg and for the rest of his life he walks with a limp. Um, do you walk with a limp? <coughs> do you walk with a limp? A reminder that no, you're not sovereign. No, you're not God. No, this is not your kingdom. And God had to bring you face to face with himself and say, Alright, I am God. There is none else. You had to, had to have an encounter like Job, who didn't have a limp, but he had so many things taken away from him. Uh, and, and, and at the end of the book of Job, chapter 38 through 42, all Job could say, You are God. You are God. And that was a man who was righteous in God's eyes and walked. Perfectly, the Bible says, completely before him. What are the limits in your life where God has said, I'm God, you're not. And you haven't forgotten it. You know, for God to have our hearts and to continually have our hearts, he's got to give us something to remind us of. It's called suffering. He wanted Jacob 
to come to a place of surrender and brokenness. And God is willing to take our strength and dislocate it. And make it weak. Jacob didn't have a strong hip after that. He had a weak hip the rest of his life. And God took something, the legs of a man, recognizing the Bible as a man's strength, <coughs> and made it weak so that Jacob remember who's strong. Remember the name he gave him, God gave him Israel, which means God strives, God fights. Jacob was the one who was the fighter his whole life, the underdog, right? The manipulator, the cheater. He had to come to the point where he understood it's God who fights my battles. He was pressed deeply into the furnace of God's purification system. It becomes Israel. <coughs> So that's the end of the suffering, right? No. It wouldn't be too much longer after, and he's reconciled with Esau, things work out, he's reconciled with Esau. It wouldn't be too much longer that we find Jacob cradling a newborn son, sitting beside the lifeless body of his beloved Rachel. And the love of Jacob's life, Rachel, who died giving birth to this child, says, name our son Ben-Omi, which means son of my sorrow. Son of my sorrow. I remember Jacob has lived this life with a name meaning deceiver or trickster. He knows the power of a name. And he refuses to give that name to this son, Ben-Omi, son of my sorrow. And he names his son Benjamin, Benjamin in English today, son of my right hand, son of my right hand. And Jacob learns that God's greatest blessings come sometimes with great pain. And in chapter 35, verse 21, the Bible says, after he buries his beloved Rachel, and Israel journeyed and spread his tent beyond the tower of the earth. Did you catch anything in that? What does God call him? What does Moses call him, I should say? Israel. This is the first time in the story of Jacob's life that he's actually called Israel. For the first time, Jacob has been Israel. God's strikes. He has faith in God's promise that overrides even his beloved wife's dying wish. Jacob becomes Israel as the one who puts his hope in God, who is made and is keeping his promises to him. And who is this God? That Jacob has determined that he can even trust in even heartbreaking sorrow. Who is this God? Jacob puts his hope in a God who will give the son of his right hand to become the son of his sorrow, this son Jesus. Who one day is going to stand in Samaria. Several uh, years, centuries later. By what's called Jacob's will. 
talking with a woman who asks a question, are you greater than our father Jacob? And the answer is, yes. Far greater. Look at the contrast between Jacob and Jesus as we close. Jacob, life seemed to be one of greed and deceit. Jesus was full of what? Grace and truth. Greed hoards. Deceit lies. Jesus grace and gives truth. Jacob looks to grasp the blessings of God in his own way, even from the day of his birth, it seems. Jesus, in Philippians 2, the Bible says, laid aside the rights and privileges of heaven. He did not count equality with God a thing that needed to be grasped. He makes himself nothing. He lets go of the riches of heaven. So that those he comes to redeem can inherit the riches of heaven. Jacob was given a vision of a ladder in which angels ascended and descended across the kingdom. Our Lord Jesus is that ladder that is the He's the link between heaven and earth. He's the God-man, the mediator between God and heaven. Jacob wrestles alone in a dark night there by the river to gain a blessing for himself. Jesus wrestles alone in the dark night in a garden to gain a blessing for you and me, not himself. Jacob couldn't look on the face of his adversary and let it. But through Christ today, he's given us 2 Corinthians 4 6, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Psalm 146 and verse 5. Happy or blessed is he that hath the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God. Matthew 5, 8, the Beatitudes of blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Revelation 22, 4 says, they will see his face. And God uses Jacob in the narrative of his story, the history of redemption, to give us the promised one, who is a far better uh, gift than Jacob was, so that we can see the face of God eye to eye, face to face in eternity for all eternity to be with Him forever. And John writes in Revelation 22 that we're going to see the Lord's face. It's near the end of where he describes the new heaven and the new earth. And when he says that, we're going to see his face. 
It's like everything that God has saved has culminated in giving us the best for last. Beauty, abundance, healing, wholeness, all those wonderful things about heaven are great. But there's not going to be anything as wonderful as looking in the face of Jesus. Who Second Corinthians says is the concentration of the glory of God. What makes heaven heaven is seeing in the face of seeing the face of Christ and living in the light of his face for all eternity. Now aren't you glad you used rascals like Jacob to bring the promised one to us to make that possible? To give us life in him. Let's pray. Lord, we praise and thank you for your work among fallen people. We probably can identify with Jacob for really honest in a lot of different ways. We like to run ahead of you. We're pretty happy when things are going well. Or we need to grasp that the greatest blessing you can give us is changing us. Thank you, Lord, for how you worked, how you turned Jacob's heart, how you didn't give up, how you completed the work that you were called to do. Jacob would falter again. At the end of his life, he blesses those twelve sons. One in particular, Judah, who was much worse man than Jacob was, he says, a scepter won't depart out of his hand. There'll be a king. We'll come on the scene. Rule and reign forever. So we thank you for delivering us into the relationship with this king of kings and lord of lords. In Jesus' name we pray.
just, I'm just going to put some more aside for you, and then when I get up a pile, I'll give you a call and talk about a bunch of trust. Okay. Holding under his rope. So he looked at me and he started running, you know. It's 
Eckhart said, every time he comes to him, he has to bring him something. He always has to bring him something. That's so cute. So you have to leave that around for him. Yeah, and yeah. we have the whole way over.